Welcome to Someone Like Me, the official podcast for End Slavery Tennessee. I'm your host, Leslie Eiler Thompson, with founder Derry Smith and a very special guest. Stephanie is a graduate of the program here, and we'll hear about her experience of being trafficked, how it all began, and where she is now. But first, please note that this conversation contains explicit content related to domestic abuse, violence, sexual assault, rape, and human trafficking. It may not be right for you. It may be triggering for some listeners. We hope it is healing for many. In a moment, you'll meet Stephanie. She'll sometimes use generic terms in her story, like prostitute or hoe. See if you can look past the words and spot the different times she was trafficked. Remember, any minor who is used for commercial sex, sex for drugs, money, or anything of value, is a trafficking victim. For those 18 and over, force, fraud, or coercion must be present for it to be classified as trafficking. And after the conversation, Derry and I discuss some closing thoughts. So here we go. Please meet Stephanie. We're here in the In Slavery Tennessee offices, um, and you've been a part of their survivor program for yeah, yeah over two years now. Over two years. Mm-hmm. What first brought you to In Slavery Tennessee? Um, I was actually incarcerated, um, have a history of human trafficking, and was accepted into Cherished Hearts, and they placed me at In Slavery Tennessee in 2016. And Cherished Hearts is a... It's a diversion program where people who are brought in on various charges are identified as human trafficking victims and diverted to actually being treated as a victim and getting services. And so you came to End Slavery Tennessee through that route, which is wonderful. Correct. Would you share with us kind of your way far back background, not necessarily where you're from, or you don't have to share any details of that, but what did your life look like uh, before your experience? that brought you to end slavery, Tennessee? Before my experience that brought me to end slavery, Tennessee. So like childhood, teenage years. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a child, um, wasn't very, well, to me, I guess it was normal because it's the only thing that I knew, but I had an alcoholic father and a mother who struggled with addiction. Mm -hmm. My father left when I was two years old. And not only did my mother struggle with addiction, but she, um, I guess she sought out different men Um, So there would be random men who would stay the night. Um, I know she got married about five times. So um, there was sexual abuse from some of those men. Um, My mother was very emotionally detached, sometimes not even physically present. I remember at one point I was maybe 12 years old and left in charge of my brother and sister for two weeks. And she went on a rendezvous with one of her biker husbands and uh we had ramen noodles for two weeks um mm-hmm. so and how old were you when she left you with them I was 12 at that okay. time I remember that one incident in particular but I mean all the way from as far back as I can remember it was always different guys her not being there me being left in charge of my brother and sister um and then of course when a child does not have supervision they tend to get in things that they you know shouldn't 14, 15-year-old should not have been doing the things that I was doing at that age. I think I started using drugs at the age of 14. My mother allowed this. Um, I remember she would have 
bags of volumes and I would sit and help her count them out into bags of 50. She would allow me to do cocaine. By the age of 17, I had already smoked crack with my mother. And that went on for a long time like that. Thank God she's got about 14 years clean now hmm. and she's a different person. So. Wow. What started her process of becoming a different person? Her process of becoming a different person is she actually, um, there was another girl with a similar story to mine who had robbed her pimp and went and found my mother and they went to a hotel room and when they found her, they came in the hotel room and what they did to that girl just scared my mom straight basically. So she left that life alone. I feel like I was about 18 at that time. So it was, it was different because, you know, I was used to being out there and being able to come to my mom's house and get high or, or even though that's not normal, but it was still, my mom was there and I could rely on her for certain things. And then all of a sudden she was just gone. And then I felt I was all alone out there. Did that disrupt your thinking and what you were doing or no, I had seen stuff like that. I uh, had been through stuff like that. Very severe beatings. It's just, I, I feel like I was desensitized at that point mm. to to a lot of stuff. Mm. So we're about at 18? Uh, yeah, I'll say 18. And then I did my first two years in county jail, day for day. Took a charge for my so-called boyfriend who sold drugs. Got out and he wasn't there for me. So I remember going back to Murfreesboro Road, um, was prostituting, doing drugs, because that's all I had known since about the age of 14. And then I met my first real trafficker. And I just remember it was dark outside and it was cold and I really wanted some more drugs and he approached me and, oh, he was good at talking. He was really good at talking. You know, he showed me the drugs he had. Um, you'll never need anything, you know, you'll be taken care of. Um, are these sorts of things that are used a lot with, in this sort of, you know, t to get women to come along with them is, are these the sorts of things that are seen a lot? Definitely. Yes. If the, especially if the woman is, is using drugs, okay. um, that's a big tactic. And then, so I agreed, we went across the street to a hotel room. Um, I, I don't know whose hotel room it was. Um, I know we went in, there was another guy in there, and then as uh, it was him, me, and another girl that he had already, I don't know how should we call these girls, uh, he called us hoes, okay. um, so I don't know, but there was, or they call, would call, um, so if a pimp had more than one girl, the other girl would be your wife-in-law, this was the terminology that a pimp used, or your hoe, and then we were his hoes. And then me and her, it was my wife-in-law, I guess is what Interesting. you would call this. So it's kind of using like this, like uh, the very familial sort of a, a thing almost. Yeah. And I remember uh, to him having, you know, having girls like that was normal. His mother was a prostitute. That's how he grew up. Um, he believed that it was in the Bible, that everything that he was doing was okay. In the Bible? Yes. He believed in this. Like it's... Did he have specific verses? No, he never said any okay. verses, but this was um, just something that he believed with everything in him and that what he was doing was perfectly fine and that's how things should be. Wow. Mm -hmm. But I remember going across the street to the hotel room and then another pimp came in with his girl 
And she was told to turn around and put her face in the corner. She wasn't allowed to look at anybody or anything like that. And I still didn't understand the situation that I had got myself into. And then I remember he gave me a handful of drugs, gave the other girl, my wife-in-law. And then from there, I just know I could hear somebody being beat. Um, it was very loud, very scary. And I remember thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into? Because once, once he gave me that handful of drugs... You know what I mean? I owed yeah. him at that point. So, yeah, that and was... And that, the, was it that third girl that was brought in that was being beat that was supposed to look at the I'm corner or... not sure, you know. just because we were in the bathroom, so I don't know. Yeah. I just remember hearing screaming and, and yelling and thumps, things like that. So, yeah. So I was in there. Like, I had gotten myself into it, you know. And um, it was just a, it was just like a night, when one night... Yeah, that was one night. The next day, we got an apartment together, and the odd thing is my, my trafficker was from Memphis, and there was a whole group of traffickers from Memphis, and it was like we all lived in the same apartment complex. Wow. Um, they all knew each other. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a big... Yes, they all knew each other, and I was not allowed to speak to to other pimps. Um, that was a rule. So the, there, of course, were other pimps who would try to get you to break those rules or try to get you in trouble or try to say things. One in particular who I was very intimidated by would always do things or try to cause issues for me. But we got that apartment, and there was three girls and him. Uh, we lived there. I had a, I don't know if you would call this a quota, but I had to bring home $500 a day. And yeah, if you did so not bring like a quota to $500 me, yeah. a day... You would get beat. I remember waking up in the morning. You would get your drugs that you, that you needed to get you up and get you motivated. And then you were to go get your money and bring that home. So the drugs were to not only to kind of hold it over your head, but also to get you physically awake and, and doing mm-hmm. the thing. Yep. I was called a wake up. A wake up. Yep. Here's your wake up. But I do remember before I actually caught on to to the rules because it wasn't like somebody set you down and interviewed you and, and you know, gave right. you a job description. Not a, sure. It was something that I had never experienced. Um, so I feel like it was like the third day and I had went out and prostituted and I had some money and I wanted to get high. So I went to somewhere that I would normally go and get high just to chill there. And next thing you know... Somebody knocked on the front door, and then it was it was him. And he came in that bedroom, and I was sitting on the side of the bed just chilling, and he hit me in the side of my face. I remember couldn't eat for several days. I couldn't really open my mouth, but I remember thinking, what was that about? And then, get your, you know, what are you doing here? You need to get your ass home. Where's my money? So, you know, slowly but surely, I figured... So it wasn't just that you had out. to bring home a certain amount of money. It was that you couldn't really do anything... No at all outside drugs, of yeah. no drugs from other people couldn't speak to other pimps any money i mean you couldn't even stop and buy yourself something to eat you had to give him your money and then ask for money to go get something to eat or ask for money for clothes or he would take you and purchase these things so he was right i would be taken care of but i would be taken care of on my own money or my own earnings yeah. um and then i would get a little bit of drugs in exchange to keep me keep me there or know that i was going to be physically harmed Mm. if if I didn't do what I was told or things like that. So I lived in fear a lot of times. I feel like some girls, it wasn't... Um, maybe they were more used to beatings and things. They were a little more carefree, and they would get... Just me seeing them get get beat. 
kept me in line a little more. You know what I mean? Carefree. Like, they didn't care. Um, they would do things that they would get in trouble for. That they know they would get in yes. trouble for. Mm-hmm. And I also know, um, well, let me see. I don't want to say he forced sex on me, but also I knew that if I didn't, there would be a repercussion for not having sex with him as well. Uh, That was when he wanted, and he just did it. Hmm. And what's the time frame that you're in that situation? I want to say about a year. Mm. It's kind of of cloudy, just, you know, you're on drugs and... Yeah. Things kind of go in and out. Was the next thing <clears throat> incarceration, or did you? He was incarcerated. Oh, he was. So okay. I, I had left. Um, I remember leaving. So you couldn't leave. Like if you, you couldn't just leave him. Um, if you did, you know, there was. It's gonna look for you. It's gonna find you, and then you're gonna be back there. Or you could, if you decided to choose up with another pimp, that pimp would have to serve him and pay him for you. I remember that. Really? Yes, so, but I did leave, and thank God he didn't find me before he was incarcerated. And again, it, I'm sure this isn't, I'm guessing it's not a sit-down process of this is how it works. Mm-mm. You just saw it happening, saw see other people go with other pimps, and then this is what happened when that happened, right? Mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't go with another pimp. I just, I knew that that was not a situation that I wanted to be in any longer, and I left was there one particular thing that made you feel like I got to go? Or was it just the combination of it, all the things? Well, yeah, beatings, being called a bitch and a hoe 24-7. And you're not even being treated like a person at this point. Yeah, I think it was a combination of everything. You just get tired of it. And, and then I guess you get tired of living in that fear of always having to give someone else your money. And then ask for things that you need. Hmm. Not even sure that you're going to get them. I mean, you might get a dollar burger from McDonald's when you just gave him, you know, three, four hundred dollars. So. And so you left. Mm -hmm. Where did you go? Back to Murfreesboro Road. So I was still prostituting, still using drugs. And that continued that way for many years. Being incarcerated, back on the streets getting high. It was, it was just a big, huge cycle for a long time. Um, I did try to get clean on several occasions. Um, would go to like halfway house or treatment center, but it wasn't until I actually came to end slavery and learned that I had a lot of trauma and issues that needed to be dealt with. And that was probably one of the biggest reasons that I would always return to, to getting high or being mistreated and things like that. So, because a lot, uh, what you're saying is a lot of the treatment programs didn't necessarily look at past trauma; they're just yeah. trying to fix the, yeah, the drug issue, but not looking at where it might have yeah. come from. Because it's more than just a drug, a drug addiction. There was a reason behind all of that. So, and would you say that's pretty typical for a lot of women who are caught in this system? Is there's past trauma, definitely under all of it. Very mm. typical. Um, I see it a lot, and I guess I'm little bit more my eyes are open more to that because I've I've you know that was part of my personal process and I see people don't just decide hey I want to be out here you know smoking crack selling my body and giving my money up just just because that's something cool to do there's an issue in there 
that you're trying not to deal with or feel. Uh, and you may not even know what it is. I think that's the key in uh, why these conversations are so important is because it changes the way we see people. It changes the way we would see someone who before we might have thought exactly what you just said. That person's just making the choice to do this or, you know, but there's there's deep, for all of us, we have deep-seated things that play out in very sometimes destructive ways and get, get caught up in systems and, and things like that. So you came here to end slavery, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. What did that survivor program look like? That survivor program, um, when I first got there, was not very receptive. I was very miserable, angry, upset. I hated everybody. But Why that was just. Why do you just, think that is? Just because I wasn't happy with myself. I didn't love myself. So I just took that out on everybody else. Because it's hard to say, oh, you're mad at yourself or you're, you don't love yourself. So you mistreat other people or they're the problem. You know what I mean? Like, but really, I was my own worst enemy at that point. I was very rude to a lot of staff. Let's just say they did not give me the reaction that I that I was used to um, being in the streets dealing with with other women. These women really cared for me. So what is so you're saying the women on the streets? What how did how did you all interact with each other? Your wife in laws is that what yeah, the phrase or, was? What was that? What were those relationships? Well, like? they were very. It wasn't like a friendly. You're my friend. Uh, it was a lot of backstabbing, a lot of stealing from each other, trying to make the other look bad. It was not a good relationship. A lot of. You know, you always had to do outdo the other one, whether if that was lying on her, or, or whatever. And so so I was used and... to to being aggressive with other women is what I was used to. Being aggressive, always defensive, because nobody had your back in the streets. Mm-hmm. And that's a stark change from coming to a place where everyone has your back <laughs> in every way. Yes. Um, at first, I was, I, I mean, I feel like there's no way that these people can be this nice or this caring or they are not paying them enough money to, 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 I mean, I just couldn't wrap my mind around another human actually caring for me like that and being that kind and giving to me and letting me go through the process that I needed to, to get out the anger. Like I disrespected some of the staff. I really did disrespect some staff and I, I, that was just part of my process and they never, I was not a happy person. Sure. I was not a healthy person. And I took that out on people who really did care for me. Mm-hmm. Until I learned how to start loving myself, respecting myself. And with that came the ability to treat others well. Mm-hmm. You know, to treat them like they were treating me. That's a good lesson for all of us. Yeah. Treating each other well has a lot to do with the way that we treat ourselves. That makes a big impact. That approach, that approach worked really well with me. Not at first. At first I was like, this is fake. This is a big (laughs) show, but it's not. (laughs) But it worked. It worked. The staff is very Mm trauma-informed. They, they get it. Now I see, I see newer survivors or other women, you know, just, just like I was. And I'm like, 
oh, if that was me, I would not just sit there all quiet, you know. <laughs> but that's that's what we need, you know. That's what we need. Because it sounds like you didn't have any time to just to make your own decisions. You didn't have any time to just sit in a room with no one needing you somewhere now and having that space to reintegrate to be a free person, you know, Mm -hmm. a person who can make their own choices and stand on their own two feet. And to feel safe. That was a big one. You feel safe there. That was one of the first things I learned starting in this world is that the point at which a survivor looked at me and cussed me up and down was like a triumph because that meant they trusted me enough to try and see if I was going to still love them or still be there or not when I got to see what they were really like. I think we all do that kind of stuff, you know, like, well, if you knew what I was really like. So anyway, that's my perspective. Yeah, there's sort of an unfolding of, because I'm sure on the surface it's a very clammed up, because that's what you've had to do, you know, and that's what we kind of all have to do when we're in difficult situations. But then to be able to unfold is probably a, a really good sign of healthy settings and safety. So you went through the survivor program. Looking back now on your experience, what are some things you would say to younger people? If you could wrap something up, wrap it all up into something, what would you say to young people? When you say young people, do you mean like young women coming into the program or just young people? Young people like in their 10s and 12s who might be in a situation that might lead to that. I feel like that's a hard one because I never had that, so I don't know what yeah. would have helped me at that time. I don't or know. going into the program. I Going into the program, I definitely, and I feel like I've said this to some women, that it's definitely worth it. Just be patient. And it's going to hurt a lot more before it gets better. Um, to just just stick with it and know that everything's going to be okay. Mm. Yeah. What do you think are the most common misperceptions or mistakes people make when they think about this in our country? Human trafficking? Yeah. That it doesn't happen, first of all. That that's something you see in other countries. It happens here all day, every day. So that would be yeah. the number one thing is that it it is here. There is this sort of idea that, it yes, it's happening overseas and, and this is terrible and all the things it is in your backyard is happening all around you whether you're aware of it or not it's still going on and it's people's lives I think that's what's striking me as I'm talking to you is you lived in a community where everyone seemingly probably everyone was doing this you lived in an apartment complex where you had I'm using quote marks here you can't see it families other you know this sort of very communal feeling structure where did it feel like everyone was doing it when you were in this in uh, that world? There, yes. Not everyone, but you know there were the girls that were and the guys that were. Yeah, but there were there was a sense that other people were doing it too. It's not like you were isolated. Mm-hmm. And that shows how vast this whole thing is and how pervasive it is. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like it, I don't know how to say this, but I feel like there's a missing piece. Like, you know, they do these sting operations and, you know, you've got this priest or this police officer or this John or that John, you know, that's soliciting sex with a woman. And and, and, and it's not just the, the traffickers, but it's also these Johns. that, that And it's people that you would never expect. 
um, a lot of times it goes unknown for a long time until, you know, they do a sting and it's like, oh, wow. So, so the people you're saying there's a missing link for people understanding that not only is it happening in terms of there are women who are being mistreated, but there are men in your community that are soliciting them. Exactly. And I think that's a really big key takeaway is it's not just that people are being exploited. It's that normal, again, quotes, air quotes, normal people in our communities that we wouldn't even expect are the ones that are perpetuating this process. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a very important takeaway. So now looking ahead, what do you see for yourself in the next five, 10 years? What are, I know you just got a full-time job. I did. Which is awesome. Yes. New full-time jobs are always so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> also a little intimidating, I'm sure. It is. I really enjoy my job. I work in a nonprofit and I give back to others. I don't know. I, I feel inside that I want to give back and I just don't know what group. Maybe it doesn't matter what group or what kinds of people. It's just giving back because so much was given to me and I have mm. so much to give to others and I have an experience that I don't believe that I went through for, for nothing. You know, it wasn't, I'm not going to let that be in vain. Um, I'm going to use that experience to empower other people, to help other people, to give back to other people. If you were talking to other places, other programs or agencies about understanding what is effective and what isn't and what you need and what is actually an obstacle, do you have any advice you would give? I feel like, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is meeting meeting us where we're at, loving us in spite of ourselves, you know, having that trauma-informed staff is very important. And not to to give up on us. Because um, a lot of times I think that's what we're used to and that's what we're expecting. So we just want to get it, you know, over with. You know, not to give up. No, that's great. I remember being in the room for this conversation and it was so powerful. This is the first conversation we had with a survivor. And when she talked about wanting to give back to somewhere, anywhere, because so much was given to her, and in her words, she has so much to give to others, it's just so powerful. It really is. I am touched every time I hear a survivor's story, and I've heard many hundreds. She's come quite a long way. She's done a lot of hard work to get there. And after our conversation with her, I wrote a post for the End Slavery blog that I'll share more about on our next episode. But for now, let's just agree, she has come a long, long way. And this is a great example of the profound service that End Slavery Tennessee provides to trafficking survivors. Now that you know more, please share this story with someone who needs to hear it. If you'd like to get involved or learn more about the issue, pop over to endslaverytn.org. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. In Slavery Tennessee thanks Jones Legacy Group for their continued support and exclusive sponsorship of this first season of Someone Like Me. Executive producer is Derry Smith. Producer and editor is Gregory Byerline. Music by Kurt Goebel. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend and review the show. 
I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thanks for listening.